This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A story we did earlier this year about sex abuse in the Catholic Church prompted one man to come forward about his own experience with the Denver Archdiocese. He believes people are still vulnerable. In a few minutes, we'll talk about delays in changes that could help victims. First, CPR's Allison Sherry has this man's story. Stephen Zettenbach had a sheltered and conservative upbringing. His parents were Catholics, and the family's social life revolved around the church. Priests were, were, were not strangers in our home. We had priests in our house fairly regularly growing up. Zettenbach was on the swim team and the valedictorian at Conifer High School in 2000. He aspired to become a priest and says he hadn't even kissed anyone when, right after he graduated, a priest who was his mentor came on to him sexually. Slowly but surely, as the summer went on, you know, he would, we'd be sitting on the couch eating lunch and he put his arm around me and he, then he would start to put his hand on my leg and start to try to cuddle with me and made me uncomfortable. The priest was Kent Drotar. He went to Zettenbach's swim meets and even bought him a laptop. That summer, he took Zuttenbach on a fishing trip to the Black Canyon and got a hotel room for the two of them. Zuttenbach said although they had two beds, he woke up to the priest fondling him. I just remember feeling like just incredibly icky through the whole thing. And he offered to hear my confession, which is against canon law, because you can't absolve someone for a sin to which you are party to. Father Drotar at the time had an instrumental role at St. John Vianney Theological Seminary in Denver. Zuttenbach started his work to become a priest when he was just 18, making him the youngest seminarian at the school, according to a former professor. At St. John Vianney, Drotar greatly controlled his academic and religious future. And Zuttenbach says the priest continued his unwelcome behavior. Drotar did not respond to multiple requests for comment at this story. Zuttenbach says he felt beholden to Father Drotar and didn't tell anyone what was going on. And I didn't want to hurt him either, because if I said something about it, I would hurt him. So, you know, it was kind of this, um, you know, mutually assured destruction. Zettenbach ended up leaving the seminary. He applied to architecture school in Florida. He wanted to get away and live openly as a gay man. When he came out to Drotar, the priest told him that God didn't make gay people. Zettenbach now lives near Orlando, designs hospitals, and is married. In 2007, three years after he cut ties with the seminary and Drotar, Zuttenbach came back to Denver to visit one of his favorite professors, Marika Frank. Frank told him about a student who was having a hard time getting ordained because Reverend Drotar thought he was too flamboyant. Zuttenbach blurted out that that was ironic given what he'd been through. His professor stopped him. He told me enough that I could tell this was a case of sexual abuse, and so I named it. I said, Stephen, you realize you were sexually abused. And that didn't seem to have occurred to him. I mean, he hadn't framed it that way for himself. Frank told her colleague Jeannie Engelbert, who was on the priest formation team and is a therapist. Engelbert sent detailed information about the situation to archdiocese leadership. I had complete faith that that they would honor um, the young man and that they would do the right thing. Then Archbishop Charles Chaput sent Drotar away to therapy for seven weeks. Engelbert and Frank figured that would be it, and he wouldn't get any other assignments. But when Drotar returned, Chapu assigned him to a parish in Denver, a parish with a school. Engelbert was stunned, so she wrote to Chapu expressing her concern. My thought was, 
whoever, wherever they sent him or whoever treated him, obviously didn't get it. Like, and so I need to like, let him know, right? I, I mean, I was speaking from my, my sort of my clinical understanding, my psychological um, training, my, my theological training. I'm like, he must not get it. And so I'm going to lay it out really clearly. Numerous stories of priests abusing seminarians have come out in the past year. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has considered doing more on the issue, but so far hasn't really taken it up. Engelbert says the church should be thinking about seminary students first, but her experience was that leadership was more interested in protecting itself. You know, I think why these things are occurring in seminaries is that it's a closed system. It needs to be opened up to provide a sense of accountability, safety, normalcy. When Zuttenbach heard that Chapu was keeping his abuser in a parish, he asked Chapu for a face-to-face meeting. The archbishop met him at a coffee shop near the diocese. And I told him in no uncertain terms, I said, either you guys do the right thing or I'm going to go to the press. Mark Haas is a spokesman for the archdiocese. He says Chapu learned new information in that meeting with Zuttenbach that led him to convene a conduct response team. And within a few weeks, Reverend Rotar was pulled from the parish. Haas notes that he is speaking on behalf of leadership that has changed since then, but that proper protocols were followed. The information that was available to them at each step, they followed, and from what we can tell, I mean, the ultimate outcome was that this man was removed from the priesthood. Haas says Drotar can no longer call himself a priest, or work as one anywhere in the world. But the church stopped short of officially defrocking or laicizing Drotar. That's important to Zuttenbach, because he doesn't want Drotar to ever have his rights restored by some archbishop down the road. Zuttenbach also says he's found places on social media where Drotar called himself a priest as recently as last year. You know, I, I, I really hope they, they do what they said they would do 10 years ago. You know, I, there's no reason not to. I mean, I mean, really, he hasn't been active as a priest for 11 years. You know, laicize him. The archdiocese says defrocking a priest requires permission from Rome and that they are pursuing that. But spokesman Haas wouldn't say where they were in the process or why it hasn't happened before. We're not trying to minimize at all the experience that this young man went through. But we do want to stress that, from what we can tell, the archdiocese handled it exactly as it should have. He's not acting as a priest anymore. I mean, the process worked, and he's no longer in ministry in Denver, in Colorado, in the U.S. For Zuttenbach, he says he's lost his faith completely, not because of the abuse, but because of the way he was treated when he reported it. And CPR's Allison Sherry joins us now. Hi, Allison. Hi, Ryan. I want to say that Zuttenbach came forward after my September interview with the Vicar General for the Denver Archdiocese. That's Father Randy Dollins. And here's some of what Dollins told us then. We have no new allegations of abuse of minors by a priest since 2002. That would tell me to say that this is an institution, right, that is responsible and reliable, that has actually done a great deal of work to safeguard the vulnerable. Well, the key word in that statement is minors. Zuttenbach was 18 when he says Drotar first fondled him. Zuttenbach has said that it felt like the church was mincing words there and that this is another slap in the face like my story didn't count. Uh, what's your sense of that? 
Yeah, you know, um, I'd like to talk about this whole notion of grooming, because in the technical sense that Drotar didn't make any sexual advances until Stephen was 18, you know, that's accurate. But Drotar met Stephen before his senior year in high school. He was just 17. Stephen was having trouble in his life, as many 17-year-olds are at that time, with his parents and whatnot. And he confided in him. And Drotar really quickly grew into this really important fixture in Stephen's life at this vulnerable time. He attended his swim meets. He came over to the house for holiday gatherings. He went to his high school graduation where Stephen made the valedictorian speech at Conifer High School. He gave him a laptop after he graduated. And yeah, it was after Stephen's 18th birthday that Reverend Drotar started coming on to him sexually. But this was a relationship, you know, first built on trust that had been ongoing. Right. An established relationship that Mm -hmm. you're saying he may have taken advantage of. Yeah. And it's not, you know, this is not completely unlike the Me Too movement in the sense that Drotar really controlled much of Stephen's academic future at that point. You know, he wanted, Stephen wanted to become a priest. He was a valedictorian. He had a lot of scholarship offers to go to other places, but he turned them down to go to seminary. And Drotar had a leadership role in the seminary. So, you know, much like when a boss takes advantage of his power over a subordinate in coming onto them in a sexual or inappropriate way, and the subordinate feels like it would be hard to push back or report it because of the power the boss has over his or her future, it's not unlike that. You know, these subordinates may be technically 18, but that doesn't make, that's not the only thing that matters here. Right. That power dynamic is important. Right. Okay. In your story, Allison, you mentioned the U.S. Conference of Bishops. Uh, They met recently, but I understand delayed taking action on this issue of sexual abuse by clergy. Yeah, they were expected to take action, but the Vatican asked them to hold off. I didn't cover the conference directly last week in Baltimore, but the reporting out there said that church leaders were planning to address sexual abuse by the clergy. They were considering a new code of conduct. They were going to create a special commission to review complaints against bishops. And another proposal was to create a hotline for reporting abuse by bishops against minors, as well as vulnerable adults that would have included seminarians. But the Vatican stepped in asked the bishops to delay that vote for three months um, until after a meeting in February. It's an international meeting that the Pope is convening um, among bishops around the world. And the Pope's denounced sexual abuse within the church, but critics say he's been slow to make changes. Um, There was a quote in USA Today last week was covering the conference from uh, Cardinal Daniel DiNardo. He's the conference president. And he said he, quote, he was disappointed that they didn't take any action, but he remains hopeful that this additional consultation will ultimately improve our response to the crisis we face. And there's a lot of victims advocates that are really disappointed, you know, and, and Catholic parishioners who wish they'd do something. How is Zettenbach doing now? You know, he's doing okay. He's still going to counseling. He's married. He has a career. He's living in Florida. He doesn't attend mass anymore. Um, And, you know, he said, and I said this in the story, but the abuse itself actually didn't kill off his faith. He was still a practicing Catholic for a while, but the way he was treated afterwards has really hurt him. Yeah. Say more about, I guess, his disappointment with the church, the process itself. Well, I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost, he wishes there would have been more contrition about what he went through. He also feels lied to um, and that there's just been a lot of excuses and sort of self-protectionism coming from the archdiocese instead of a broad, open acknowledgement that something bad happened to him. They should have protected him. And now they're taking steps to make it right. Yeah, this Um, question of making uh, Reverend Rotar laicized. Right. And that's 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 one thing in particular that he's been waiting for for about a decade. And he says the church has, you know, sort of repeatedly said 
They're going to try to do this, and they haven't made it happen. You know, lay-sizing someone is a pretty big deal. It's sort of like removing their degree. It takes permission from Rome. And it's, it, the archdiocese hasn't been clear why they haven't done this yet or what the what's going on there. But even in October, Stephen showed me some emails from the archdiocese where they said they're working on it. And I asked the archdiocese about this, and they said, you know, they're not going to comment on private emails to Stephen, but they're planning to do what they say. Um, but they also say, for all intents and purposes, Drotar can no longer call himself a priest or practice as one anywhere in the world. He's had his quote-unquote faculties stripped. But Stephen wishes they'd go that one step further. Allison, thanks for sharing the story with us. Thanks, Ryan. She is CPR's justice reporter. Ask a Denverite where the name of their city comes from, and perhaps you'll get a blank stare. Or just maybe, just maybe an answer like this. Uh, John Denver? Uh, no. For the real story, we have journalist Matt Masick here. He has written about how Denver got its name. And it just so happens that tomorrow is the 160th anniversary of Denver's founding. Masick is here to tell us a story that involves a duel with rifles at 40 paces. And Matt, hello again. Hi there. We'll get into that duel in a moment. First, who was the city of Denver named after? His name was James William Denver. Uh, He was a territorial governor of Kansas. He was a Civil War general. And he didn't spend much time in Colorado. James William Denver. Okay, we're talking about JWD here. Mm -hmm. How did it come to be that his name was given to the city? Well, it starts out when he is the territorial governor of Kansas in 1858. Uh, He has his hands full because back then Kansas is called Bleeding Kansas on account of the pro-slavery and anti-slavery guys are fighting and killing each other. You have John Brown and his gang uh, hacking to death uh, pro-slavery guys with swords. My goodness. Uh, and so Denver, uh, he actually keeps the peace pretty well. He he makes Bleeding Kansas bleed significantly less. Uh But while that's going on, out in eastern Kansas, it's called Arapahoe County, Kansas. Now we would call that Colorado's Eastern Plains. Yeah. Uh, They find gold at the confluence of the South Platte and Cherry Creek. And there's a bunch of guys going out there uh, trying to get rich. And Denver sees, you know, if people are murdering each other in the part of Kansas that actually has a functioning government – uh, things are going to get pretty wild out there in, in uh, eastern Kansas where, where there's no government. So uh, he appoints some uh, county officials, uh, some with familiar names. Uh, he, he appoints Ned Winecoop as the county sheriff. Oh, yes. Yeah, you might recognize that. And uh, William Larimer as the treasurer. Okay, these are obviously both street names in downtown Denver, Winecoop and Larimer, or Wincoop. Depending on your pronunciation. So he sends them out knowing that this is a, a pretty harsh place and it needs it needs some law and order. Right. Uh, so those guys come out in uh, early October. They depart from Kansas and they, they arrive uh, right about where we are in uh, about this time of the year in uh, 1858. And uh, uh, Larimer, Winecoop and Company uh, find that there's already a town site uh, claimed uh, where they want to do it uh, on the eastern side of Cherry Creek. And so they jump the claim. 
and <laughs> and uh, uh, decide to start a, a town of their own. And uh, they, they're struggling to come up with town names. They, they got Eureka, Excelsior, Mineral, Mountain City, and none of them really feel right. And And then they think, hey, we want to make this town the county seat. How can we curry some favor with uh, Governor Denver? Ah, why don't we name it after Governor Denver? He's sure to make it the county seat. We could name it Denver. I do love these alternative names that never came to fruition. Among them also El Dorado, I think. Mountain City. That would be a misnomer. I know. People already yeah. think that we're up in the mountains. <laughs> but So I, I wonder if James William Denver was, was pleased to hear about this. Well, he didn't mind. He was flattered. But it, it didn't really uh, do much to uh, curry favor and, and, and have him name it the uh, county seat because little did they know that a week after they left for Colorado, uh, uh, Denver had resigned as governor. Oh, I see. Some poor timing. But, you know, there weren't smartphones back then to communicate quickly. Nah, nah. To have learned about this. Uh, Does that mean that Denver left what was then Kansas without even knowing that he had a city named after him? And what became of him? Well, uh, yeah, he he does leave not knowing until sometime later that that, uh, Denver, uh, the city, is named after him. Uh, He uh, goes into democratic politics. He he becomes a a general in the Civil War. He's in the general vicinity of important stuff, but he didn't really do that much of note. Uh, And he he becomes a a lawyer in, in Washington. In Washington. Okay, we have to talk about this duel, Matt Masick. You're listening to Colorado Matters, by the way. We're talking about where the name Denver came from. Turns out the city is named for James William Denver. And about this duel, this this began to color his life, didn't it? It did. So uh, back before he was uh, the governor of Kansas, he was a uh, state senator out in California during the gold rush. And uh, there was this incident in in the early 1850s where a uh, a bunch of uh, settlers who were crossing the mountains trying to come into California get stuck in the mountains with no supplies, you know, that, uh, and so the governor, who's a, a friend of uh, Denver's, sends out a relief column to rescue these settlers. And the governor rides at the head of the, the procession uh, as, it, as it leaves town and uh, then uh, Denver goes along with this relief party and, and helps out these settlers. But there's a, a problem. Uh, uh, the uh, editor of the uh, largest newspaper pens a uh, an anonymous editorial just mocking the governor for, for trying to win political points. Oh, uh, like this was a publicity like, stunt or Right. And, and uh, you know, comparing uh, the procession to a, a circus parade. And, and uh, uh, when Denver finds out about this, he, he's angry. And uh, he says that uh, none but a, a personal enemy uh, – uh, could could imagine such things, and that enemy must be of the smallest possible caliber. And he says, none but a and an envious and malicious heart could have could have uh, written such words. Well, then, them are fighting words. Those are definitely fighting words, and uh, they were taken as such by this editor. His name was Edward Gilbert, uh, who, who says. Uh, if if any of the governor's friends uh, want to make issue upon the matter, they know where to find me. Uh, Denver responds in, in another uh, uh, letter printed in a different newspaper, uh, basically saying, oh, yeah, 
Well, if uh, you may have any issue upon the matter you desire, and you know where to find us, too. And so, to me, that sounds like a bunch of Victorian gibberish. But, <laughs> but back then, uh, the, them's fighting words for sure. And, and fighting words turn into fighting deeds pretty quickly out on the frontier. That's right. So James William Denver, the namesake for the city at 5280, uh, gets involved in a duel and... Um, so, so what happens? Who who survives? Well, so uh, Gilbert, the editor, challenges Denver to a duel, uh, and it seems kind of crazy uh, that uh, you know a, a, a squabble between journalists and a politician could turn into a duel. But it's actually kind. Yeah, these days, I'm not sure that that's so far-fetched. No, no. You, you can kind of imagine how, in a different time, it would actually turn into actual violence. Uh, so. They agreed uh, uh, to to meet outside of Sacramento uh, as the challenge party. Denver gets to pick uh, uh, the weapons. He chooses rifles at uh, 40 paces. He was a pretty good shot back when he was in the Army. Uh, And uh, so they meet at at sunrise, and uh, they each have their different strategy. Uh, Gilbert, the editor, uh, dresses all in green sort of to camouflage himself in the in the foliage and and Denver chooses to stand with the rising sun at his back to, to you know blind uh, Gilbert so they all their friends are gathered around everybody's watching uh, they, they you know, it comes time to do the first shot they both fire now Denver misses deliberately but Gilbert's trying to kill him and just plain old misses so back when they're doing uh, duels the this code of honor said that uh, if if both of you uh, are are willing to face each other, uh, and uh, uh, then you you both can throw away your shot, deliberately miss, and then you'll have proved your honor, and you can shake hands after that just to to prove yourself. And that's what Denver was thinking was going to happen. But Gilbert, the editor, is saying no, no, <laughs> we're we're going to keep on going. And uh, uh, Denver, you know, his offer to shake hands being rebuffed says something to the effect of. Well, I didn't come here to stand around all day being shot at. And so he says, well, I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm aiming for him this time. It comes time for the second shot. They both fire. Gilbert misses. Denver plugs Gilbert right through the gut. And the editor is dead within five minutes. Wow. Okay, so the namesake for Denver killed a journalist who is trying to kill him. So... <laughs> Yeah, uh, so it, it actually... The context is important here. <laughs> Just very briefly, Matt, has there been any effort to prominently recognize uh, James William Denver in Denver? Well, you can find uh, him in a couple of places. Up on the fifth floor of the Denver Public Library downtown, there's an oil painting of him. He looks pretty nice in his Civil War general's uniform. And if you have really good eyes or maybe some binoculars, you can look way up at the top of the Capitol Dome inside the rotunda in, in Colorado and in Denver. And you can see uh, a tiny little stained glass portrait of Denver way up at the top, uh, among other uh, portraits. Did he ever come... To his namesake city. Yes, and he found it to be one of the most humiliating experiences of his life. He, he actually came here twice. Uh, uh, the first time he was invited, he thought, oh, people are going to put on a show and, and make much of him. 
that no, there's there is nothing. He they they uh, cajoled him into coming out a second time. Uh, they said we're going to give you the freedom of the city. You're going to have as much pomp and circumstance as you can handle. He says all right. He gets his wife. He gets his kids. He packs them up. Arrives at uh, Union Depot. The only thing missing is uh, crickets and tumbleweeds. It, it, oh, it's boy. just he's completely ignored, and he he uh, rebuffs a third invitation uh, uh, just because. He got such shabby treatment the first two times. It doesn't actually pay to be named for a city or have a city named after you. Journalist Matt Masick has written about how Denver got its name. Tomorrow is the 160th anniversary of the city's founding. Gone to Denver. Gone to Denver. Gone to men. A broken heart. Time I was going. And if I'm going. The refugee first Thanksgiving in Aurora has been a big event for years, but numbers were down this year, partly because there are fewer refugees coming into the country. CPR's Nathaniel Minor reports. St. Matthew's in North Aurora has been through a lot of changes. It was a Lutheran church, but as its congregation aged, they decided to close it down and give the building to a nonprofit. Now, it's a community center, and on this night, it's packed. Everyone is here for Thanksgiving dinner, but there's more than just turkey and mashed potatoes. What do you have on your plate? It looks so good. Uh, This is rice, and this is chicken curry, and I think this looks like uh, Burmese food. The food came from a number of local houses of worship. A mosque served rice and halal meat. A synagogue offered up chickpea salad and tuna sandwiches. So an event like this is an opportunity and, you know, live and in living color to say this is what the spirit of Thanksgiving is. Jennifer Gadish runs the African Community Center, which organized the event. It's an opportunity to build community around new residents, mostly from the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and East Africa. But this year's event comes after President Trump has made some big changes in refugee resettlement. Um, We are beginning to see a shift. We've seen fewer Muslim families arrive and more Christian origin families arriving. That's all I'm going to say. Numbers are way down across the U.S. and in Colorado. The state is settling about 2,000 refugees a year. Now, that's down to around 700. You know, those are empty seats in a lifeboat. Um, People who are not going to realize opportunity. They're left sitting in either a refugee camp or um, waiting to hear if they would ever be accepted into the program. So that's frustrating. The people here are the lucky ones who've made it. Some waited a decade. Others, like Musa Al-Kafaji and his family from Iraq, only waited a fraction of that. But their move nearly fell through. And when we were ready to travel, we were so happy. We got the call from IOM. And they said our flight is canceled because of the travel ban. The United Nations had canceled the plane tickets because of President Trump's travel ban. Shortly after his inauguration, the president put immigration restrictions on a number of Muslim-majority countries. So Al-Khafaji decided to take a big risk. He took his savings and bought plane tickets himself when a court put Trump's travel ban on hold. We didn't tell anyone except our families. So just in case, if they say we're not allowed or they'll turn us back, we'll go next day to our work and live our life normal. No one knows about this. In 2017, Baghdad was still a dangerous place. And even more so for Al-Khafaji. 
He worked for the U.S. government as a translator between Iraqis and the occupying U.S. forces, and he'd gotten death threats over the years, but he didn't take them seriously until he had a family. Just by myself, I can't deal with it. But it's not start having family and kids, you have to take care of them. They made it to the U.S. in February 2017. We are lucky to come to Colorado, to Denver, to the neighborhood I live in it. I mean, the people are really welcoming, helpful, supportive all the time, smiling in your face. So things is good so far. Now that Al-Kafaji and his family have settled in, he's ready to stop getting help and start giving it. He says he started a new job last week at another refugee agency in town. In a life full of change, he says, this is one he's thankful for. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright will be back in Colorado next week. She'll talk about the state of international relations at the University of Denver. Among her concerns, the possible rise of fascism, something she's all too familiar with. It forced her and her family out of their native Czechoslovakia during World War II. Eventually, they settled in Colorado, where Albright spent her teen years. Her father was the first dean of international studies at DU. Albright, of course, would go on to serve as President Bill Clinton's chief diplomat. Today, she warns that fascism is again gaining a foothold around the world. And while she stops short of labeling President Trump that way, she describes him as the first anti-democratic president in modern U.S. history. Madeleine Albright has written a book called Fascism, A Warning. We spoke in April. And Madam Secretary, welcome back to the program. Great to be in Colorado. Thank you. You are critical of President Trump for sure in this book. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a bit. But you write, I, for one, do not foreclose the possibility that the president's brash disregard for diplomatic convention might in some cases be exactly what's needed to awaken people to new possibilities. Well, I do think that there are those that would like to cut through a lot of the verbiage and maybe be brash. The problem is that there are too many brash times, and I think the unpredictability of the brashness is something that one has to be careful of because it does need to be followed up by detail, so that's the issue. Detail. Your book, as we mentioned, is called Fascism, A Warning. Why this warning and why now? Well, let me just say, I think that... um, There are various elements to fascism, and I think that we are not paying enough attention. And the book is basically historical in terms of looking at Mussolini and Hitler, but then also the kinds of things that are going on in Europe uh, with Turkey, with um, Poland, Hungary, uh, and then also what has happened in Venezuela as examples. And so I look at the steps that have existed in the past and then seeing when he, whether any of that is existing right now in the U.S. That is the steps towards a fascist regime. And indeed, you dig into modern figures like Duterte and Erdogan. Uh, and why now? Why look at those steps towards fascism at this point in history? Because I am concerned about some of the trends and uh, signs that are going on here. For instance, the fact that there is an identification with only one group and a, a really way of derogating the rights of those that are not part of it a lack of respect for democratic institutions, uh, the press uh, for one, the judiciary for another, and kind of a sense that there's no discussion with people that you disagree with, that there is a way uh, of really exacerbating the differences that exist in any society, and that's what I'm troubled by. What do you mean by identification with one group? Is that 
statement of partisanship? No, I think it's more kind of um, whether it's a, a, a group of people that are highly nationalistic, kind of tribal approach, not understanding the importance of diversity of populations, especially the United States, and kind of exacerbating that sense that, you know, America first and that we don't care about other places, nor do we care about people in the United States um, that are of mixed backgrounds. You have a lot of trouble with the notion of America first. You write extensively about that in the book. Why do you think that's an improper lens to look at the world through? To say jobs here should come first, that citizens here should come first. Well, I have uh, given my history and what it was like when that term first came up in the 30s and kept America out of doing um, a really responsible job in dealing with what was happening in Europe. That's one part. But the other is... The, the U.S.'s lack of involvement. Lack of involvement. To a certain point in World War II. Exactly. Well, and leading up to it, for instance, very specifically what was happening to the country where I was born, Czechoslovakia, and the Munich Agreement, where the U.S. wasn't present. But now, obviously... We do have to worry about what is going on in the U.S. And in terms of people being left out or the infrastructure uh, really falling apart in a number of ways. But I think America's health and vitality depends on how what the rest of the world looks like. Uh, are they... Uh, are we somehow supporting places or lack of any interest in places that become a Petri dish for people that hate us? And so America's strength, and it's the job of every president to protect our people, our territory, and our way of life. But that, for me, means being involved in what is going on abroad and worrying also about not just America alone or America as a victim. And yet the United States has been so deeply involved and for so long in some places, of course, Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think many would say that hasn't really paid dividends. Well, I, I do think that's very much the issue. And uh, President Obama was actually elected to get us out of those places because there were real questions about what we were doing in Iraq, what was the purpose of that. And then something that I think is very troublesome is that President Karzai, former president of Afghanistan, basically blamed us for what happened there instead of thanking us for helping him. You acknowledge that this warning you send in the book Fascism uh, is written during the Trump era, but you don't call him a fascist. You use that term anti-democratic, as I said. I want to understand a little bit more about what it means to you. So you start with Mussolini and Hitler, as you say, and, and you lay out some of those factors, those steps that indeed lead to fascism. And you find that similar conditions exist now. One of them is changing technology. You acknowledge that can be a good thing, but you see danger there as well. Why? Well, first of all, let me say I would have written this book no matter who had gotten elected, because what I began to see was the fact that there were a lot of have-nots in this country as a result of technology, people who had lost their jobs and they couldn't understand why, nor was our educational system set up in a way to teach them new skills. And so that division in society was beginning then, and people wondering why the 1% had so much when a lot of people were out of work. And so I was looking at what happens when there are divisions in society, and then what happens uh, if there is a leader who kind of identifies himself with that group and then disrespects and uh, really exacerbates the differences with the others. So some of the things that I was nervous about really did come about with this election. And you see uh, correlations 
similarities, patterns to that period before World War II. I do, Mm -hmm. because some of it is that America first, blaming foreigners for things. Why would you want a bunch of immigrants who are taking the jobs? And really a disrespect for the truth. And yet, when you look at, say, the last 25 years, Democrats have held the presidency for 16. To what extent are they to blame for the economic picture that you're talking about? Well, I do think that um, there was a lack of attention being paid. On the other hand, um, during the Obama administration, the economic uh, situation had changed for a lot of people. But I don't think that there was enough attention paid to what you said initially, the technological advances and the displacement that took place. And the idea that people's jobs are being replaced by robots, by by automation. Another point you raise is changing communication. So in the Mussolini era, that meant the advent of radio. In this era, it's the Internet, social media. You call for social media to be regulated. Quote, at a minimum, Internet users require tools that will enable them to identify bot-generated and other forms of faux news services. You say that regulation to ensure that the source of online political messaging is as transparent as the sponsorship of campaign commercials that appear on radio and television. I think we all thought that the social media was an incredible new toy and a great gift. And a lot of it is, but it is also has its downside. And I think that part of it is how it's being used by those who disrespect the freedom of the press and also by the Russians, for instance. We are dealing with um, the, a former KGB officer in President Putin, and he has weaponized information. And so we have to figure out how to deal with it. I do think some form of regulation is useful, but I think we have to see it for the good parts and the negative parts. And yet, as you identify fascist leaders in this book, you talk over and over about how they suppressed the media. Is that the risk here, though, if you regulate social media? Well, I'm not saying suppress it. I do think that even those that um, many of us, I believe, obviously, in a free press and also in the capability of information of exchange. um, But I really do think that we have an issue about how it is being misused. And so not a lot of regulation, but I think something that understands what the problems are. We're listening back to my conversation from April with former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Her new book is called Fascism, A Warning. Perhaps you know that Albright spent her formative years in Denver. Her father, Joseph Corbell, was the founder of the School of International Studies at the University of Denver. You write about several current world leaders, chief among them Vladimir Putin, uh, whom you met when you were Secretary of State as he was a rising leader in Russia. How would you deal with Putin and Russia at this point? Let me say that I think that I'm very concerned about what Putin himself is doing. Uh, And I have him in this book also. Um, Fascists don't just have to be from the right. Uh, They also are from the left. And some of the kinds of things that are going on in Russia are similar in terms of the, the steps that are taking place. I do think his desire at the moment is not only to make Russia more important and larger and in a bunch of different places that they want to have control, but also to undermine democracy and to use democracy and its uh, institutions to that purpose, such as the media and the things that they're doing in Central and Eastern Europe and the things that they were doing, I believe, during our election that need to be exposed. You're talking about some of the attacks on former Soviet satellites, for instance, 
Do you remember the first time you met Putin, what it well, was like? The first time I met him was a little bit different. It was during a meeting in Asia, the APEC summit in New Zealand, and he was still kind of the caretaker president, and he seemed kind of very small and uh, pale, um, and he was trying to ingratiate himself with everybody, especially with President Clinton. And then when I went to Russia later in order to prepare for the summit, and then the summit itself in the summer of 2000, and by then it was very clear that he was feeling the power of being the president. He was very smart. He spoke without notes and took notes and really challenged various things. So I think he is a smart person who knows how to play a weak hand very well. We have talked about leaders. I want to talk about the electorate. I want to talk about the citizens of democracies and their responsibility, because you you call them out to some extent. I mean, aside from a lack of trust in institutions, there also seems to be a lack of simple information going on. Uh, A recent survey about the Holocaust found that 40 percent of Americans and two thirds of millennials don't know what Auschwitz was. About a third of Americans believe that two million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. It's six Your father, as we mentioned, was a leading academic in the field of foreign relations. You teach now at Georgetown. Uh, If you are afraid of the rise, uh, the rise again of fascism, to what extent is that on the, the, the backs of voters in various countries? I think you bring up a very important point because I have feel strongly that there is a responsibility of voters or uh, citizens to know what they should be doing and thinking. And so, you know, that saying, I say something, uh, see something, say something, I've added to that, do something. And among the do's are that I think people need to understand better what is going on, be actively involved in questioning their legislators and becoming legislators themselves. But you have raised one of the crucial issues is where do people get their information? And we talked about this earlier in terms of do you get, if people only listen to what they already think they know and live in echo chambers and don't seek to have discussions with people that they differ with, you lose the whole purpose of democracy. I wonder if you make conversations like that harder, though, when you refer to President Trump as the first anti-democratic president in history. How, how do you support that claim? And, and how do you bring a claim like that up with someone who voted for Trump and expect the conversation to continue? Well, I think the hard part is how not to be condescending to those people and to really listen to them. But I do think that there needs to be an understanding of what democracy is about. And what do you mean when you say he's the first anti-democratic president in U.S. history? Well, his kind of instincts are that he does not understand the value of the institutions, specifically the press, by calling everything that he disagrees with fake news and saying enemy is of the people, that he does not respect the democratic institutions, i.e. the judiciary uh, specifically, that he also has this tendency to uh, uh, really disrespect anybody that he disagrees with and not explain anything, and mostly that he is using um, the institutions to his own purpose. And I think that he is not democratic and he thinks he's above the law. And that's the part that I think is essential to look at, especially given the kinds of things that are going on. But I have not called him a fascist. I think there are, however, steps that make me very nervous. Have you met him? No, I have not. Do you want to? No. Um, no. I do not. No. 
uh, because I, I think that he doesn't listen. And I do think that part of what I'm talking about is the importance of listening to those with whom you disagree. And I don't see anything in the way that he handles people um, that would um, really indicate that he wants to listen. But I do think that the people who voted for him uh, need to be respected. I think I would like to have more discussions with them. Uh, You were a big supporter of Hillary Clinton. Uh, But some of the issues we've talked about, the division of America economically, the split between urban and rural voters, uh, many people have said Clinton was just out of touch there, that she missed the importance of those issues. One, do you agree? And two, do you think... Uh, the Democratic Party has realized uh, that and uh, might change course. Well, I do think that um, there were issues that the Democrats, we lost uh, touch with our base in many ways. Labor was our base. And it wasn't her, but a, a whole host of Democrats. And now I think the Democratic Party is fairly divided, frankly. Um, and I, what I'm arguing for generally, I'm a centrist, and I do think that what we should be doing is trying to find ground in the party, but also I believe in bipartisanship and trying to sort out ways where we don't divide people so much um, as much as trying to find common ground. Roosevelt, for instance, during the Depression, Franklin Roosevelt, was attacked from the left and the right and was able to find common ground and policies that helped those that needed help. Is centrism dead? I hope not, because I do think that uh, you can't get much done if you are operating from far left or far right. And that agreement, compromise is not a four-letter word. It is something that is important in order to make a democracy work. There's a presidential election in two years, and the names we hear as candidates are people like Joe Biden. I think it's fair to say that he represents maybe the old guard of democratic politics. Do, Do the Democrats have a bench? There's a very large bench, frankly, and it's very interesting because it does have uh, people like Joe Biden and then also a lot of new younger members of Congress that are very active and smart, and some of them are veterans and understand what America should or can't do abroad. And I'm very pleased. I think we have a very large bench. And how do you think they might restore some bipartisanship in Washington? Well, I think I mean, so. the how, you know, is, is the critical question here. Well, I do think the only way to do it is to actually have respect for those that you disagree with and listen to them. That is not easy. And one of the things that I'm calling for is that there be discussions between uh, among those that disagree and have a capability of, of responding to them instead of yelling at them or threatening violence. Uh, and so that's what worries me is that we are not respectful enough of other people's views. Madam Secretary, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Madeleine Albright, who spent some of her formative years in Denver, served as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and as Secretary of State under President Bill Clinton. She has written Fascism, A Warning. We spoke in April, obviously before the midterms. She'll be back in Colorado next week to talk about the state of international affairs at an event at DU, which also features John Kerry. Finally today, Nashville-based singer-songwriter Matthew Moon returns to Colorado for a hometown show this weekend. Although Moon left Denver in 2005, he has maintained strong ties here, collaborating with members of the Colorado Symphony, Devochka, Big Head Todd and the Monsters. And this weekend, he'll open for his friend Hazel Miller. Today we have a special treat. Moon shares a brand new, yet-to-be-released song called Bad News. 
Matthew Moon and the premiere of his new track, Bad News. The good news is, a new album is currently in the works, and he'll open for the Hazel Miller Band at Boulder's Dairy Arts Center on Saturday. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. Start something, never see it coming, and nothing.